All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, this morning, we are going to finish out our uh, series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, God, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together already to uh, worship uh, through singing, uh, through being together. God, I pray now over the next few minutes as we read your word and talk about it for just a little bit, um, God, that you would still be at work in our hearts and minds, uh, that we would hear uh, the wisdom from Ecclesiastes that you would have us hear, that we would receive it as the author of Ecclesiastes intended. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work to draw us to you, uh, to lift Jesus high in this place that we might be drawn to you. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance here. But God, your words are of utmost importance, so I pray that we would hear those. And God, we ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So we're at the end of Ecclesiastes, at the end of the matter, as what we see written here. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, I'm going to read the whole passage before we get started. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 through 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 14. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 finishes the first eight verses are this um, reflection on uh, old age and youth. And it's kind of really beautiful though, even though it's talking about this difficult topic of getting old and what that looks like and feels like. And then, and then in verse nine through the end of the chapter, there's little something else going on that we'll talk about um, in a second. But in light of the fact that the first 
uh, eight verses here are sort of bleak in and of themselves. Uh, that's often the case when it comes to the book of Ecclesiastes. It feels a little bleak. It feels uh, just a little rough. And often it forces us to step back and ask ourselves, where is God in all of this that, that we're talking about? Because it just doesn't feel good at first reading. Um, I would say this about this chapter of Ecclesiastes, uh, is that God is referenced in three different ways in this chapter. He's referenced as creator, shepherd, and judge. And we could probably spend a lot of time talking about those three things and the way that he's referenced here in chapter 14. But what I really want to do this morning is get to the heart of the matter um, that the preacher and the author of Ecclesiastes, I think, was getting at uh, through this. From the very beginning of Ecclesiastes until now, we've repeatedly seen this character, the preacher, talk about the vanity of this world and the things of this world. And he does it again here in the very last chapter with the very last thing that he says in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. I actually love the way that uh, Eugene Peterson, though, translate this, translates this idea in the message. He says, it's all smoke, nothing but smoke. The quester says, everything is smoke. And if we were to quickly sum up verses 1 through 8, I think that we should probably see them, like I said, as this reflection on the vanity of youth and age. And just like the preacher has over and over throughout the book of Ecclesiastes talked about how death is the great leveling field, that death will come for us all. Here, in these first eight verses of chapter 12, he reminds us that we're all going to get old. Because we're all going to get old, it's wise and good and to, to go ahead and remember your creator now. Right? Don't wait until he says, as he says here, don't wait until the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, and the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, and the wheel broken at the cistern. Right? With these words, the preacher is uh, reminding us of the vanity of youth and age, but he's doing it in a really beautiful way. What we haven't talked a lot about in the book of Ecclesiastes, but what I think is true is that Ecclesiastes is the height of Old Testament poetry. And so even though at times it feels dark and bleak, it's really beautifully written. In fact, the famous journalist Tom Wolfe said this in the book of Ecclesiastes, that it is the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth the greatest, the greatest single piece of writing I have known. I definitely think the first eight verses are really beautiful. In verse 9, though, something different begins to happen. Here we once again hear the voice of the person who has been reporting the words of the preacher, passing along the wisdom of the preacher. It's sort of um, framed throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as like a father passing it down. Um, but that's what we have here. We have the voice of this person again who's been reporting the words of the preacher and passing that wisdom along. And here at the very end, after we've heard the last words of the preacher, he sort of, uh, the writer sort of adds their own perspective to the words. They start by saying the preacher was wise 
that the preacher passed wisdom to the people, that he took great care to pass along the, rates, the, right, the right sort of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 10, it says, the preacher taught words of both delight and truth. This is probably somewhat of a reference, I think, to the high aesthetic quality of the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's also to the fact that there's just good wisdom and knowledge being passed down. In verse 11, he speaks of how the wise words of the preacher are like goads. Goads refer to like the sharp shepherd staffs or maybe shepherd staffs with nails in them or other sharp objects on them that were used by ancient shepherds to, to goad sheep onto the right path to keep them going in the right direction. Part of what the author is implying, I think, is that wise words not only bring pleasure and truth, they also bring a little bit of pain. And they uh, dispel illusions and they confront folly and they serve to keep you focused. And Ecclesiastes is certainly a book that confronts you head on and makes you pay attention. Verse 12, he makes a statement about being cautious of wisdom beyond what the preacher has already given. Um, I don't think that the intent there is to say that study is unimportant or books are unimportant. I think it's more that he's saying the wisdom of the preacher so far is a pretty solid foundation upon which to build your life. And then in verses 13 and 14, we get to the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Over and over throughout this book, despite all the talk of vanity, the preacher has constantly been saying the same three things over and over and over. All right, the preacher's constantly been saying these same three things in the midst of a complex and confusing, confusing and fallen world, in the midst of a world that seems like vanity. Remember these three things. Number one, live joyfully. Find a way to live joyfully in the everyday stuff of life, recognizing that all we have comes from God. God is the, pride, is the provider of those things. So live joyfully and contentedly in what God has provided. Second, you hear it over and over throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, fear God. Live reverently before God, meaning trust, honor, and obey God. Third, you see this over and over as well throughout the book, live in a way that recognizes that God will one day judge, that God will one day bring judgment and justice to all people and all things. Those three uh, sort of imperatives show up over and over and over throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. You can find them in six or seven different places as you move through the book. So the author of Ecclesiastes is simply boiling down all of the preacher's wisdom into what he thinks is the most important truth to take away, which is what the preacher has been saying all along anyway. And so as we end our time together this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes, I sort of just want to spend our next few minutes reflecting on three words or three ideas that show up in chapter 12, but I think are a good summation of everything we've seen so far. Those three words are vanity, pain, and judgment. 
Now, those don't seem like great words. I recognize that. Uh, but I think there's something good for us here. Vanity, pain, judgment. Starting with verse 8, like we saw a second ago, the preacher says, Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. We've heard this phrase over and over, um, but the way we hear it now should be different than the way we heard it when we first dived into the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. This week, as I was thinking back on the book of Ecclesiastes and specifically this idea of vanity and this phrase, all is vanity, I had this memory from my past flash across my mind, and it was this. When I was younger, from the time I was nine till the time I was 15, which was a long time ago now, uh, I would spend uh, my summers with an aunt and uncle of mine in a rural part of North Carolina. And, uh, and their house was at the top of this really big hill. It wasn't a mountain or anything. Uh, as a child, it felt like a mountain, but it's really just a really big hill. They had this huge front yard that sloped down to a dirt road uh, and in front of the house on the dirt road, there was a mailbox and a paper box, right, where the mail was delivered and where the paper was delivered. Um, and uh, every single day of the week, including Sunday, when the Sunday paper was delivered, every single day of the week, my uncle would make a point of walking down to the mailbox every day to get the mail or the paper. And every time he would do it, he would spend 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes walking down the hill, stopping to pull weeds that were coming up in his yard. He would sit down somewhere in the yard, pull some weeds, get up, walk a little farther, do the same thing. Every single day, he would do this. He would go down to the bottom of the hill. He would get the paper or the mail. He would start back up and do the same thing on the way back up the hill, take a different route, put the mail down somewhere, pull weeds for a little bit, move to a different spot, pull weeds continue back up the hill till he got to the top of the hill. I can remember seeing him do this. I can remember walking with him as he did this. I can remember him teaching me about the different weeds. And the whole time I was thinking how meaningless and ridiculous this task was because it was every single day. It was arduous. It never ended. The yard was too big. The weeds were too many. Right? And to me, it was meaningless. It was vanity. It seemed pointless. The reality of the fact is to my uncle, there was great joy in it. I, I'm not sure there would be for me. But I'm not sure I can ever hear this phrase from the book of Ecclesiastes now without having that picture in my mind. But I don't think that's the exact kind of picture the preacher or the author wants us to take away from this book when he says vanity of vanities. Right, the preacher is not saying that life and work and all these things in and of themselves is vanity, pointless, meaningless. I think instead what the preacher is getting at is that there's vanity, meaningless, and absurdity in trying to find meaning in places or in things that weren't actually intended to give you meaning. Part of what we should see from this book is that all of us, like the preacher, are on a journey to find meaning and hope and purpose and significance. Everyone is going to hook their hope to something because that's just how we are as people. Everyone looks 
for truth. Everyone attaches his or identity to someone or to something. Everyone searches for fulfillment and significance. But what the book of Ecclesiastes says to us is this. Everything in this world will fail you. Everything under the sun is going to come up short. Money, pleasure, power, work, youth, whatever. When those things become what you seek to provide some sense of fulfillment for you, they'll actually end up failing you. And this is precisely because this created world was never designed to satisfy that search for meaning and hope and significance. I mean, the created world and the things of the world, those things I mentioned can do a lot for you, but they can't actually do something they weren't designed to do. And so throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, there is this reminder that meaning comes not from the things of the created world, but from God alone. It's a reminder that every place we go to find meaning in this world under the sun, that when we reach for that meaning in the wrong things and things that can't actually do what you think they can, it's like trying to grab smoke. It can't be done. And in reality, that's part of the gospel that we see in Ecclesiastes. It points to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When we hear the word vanity, all is vanity, all is meaningless, it's all absurd. Part of what we need to hear is that the wisdom that the preacher is passing down to us is that where you go to find meaning and significance and hope, if it's not the right place, it's going to end up pointless. It's going to end up not doing what you think it's going to do. It's going to fall short. It's going to fail you. And you're not actually going to find hope in those things. The next word, vanity was the first one. The next word is pain. If you look at verse 11, it says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one Shepherd. This is sort of an aside, but it's hard for me to read this passage about goads and not think forward to Paul's conversion experience in the New Testament. We're able to do that on this side of the cross. But do you remember what Paul said that Jesus asked him when he was recounting his conversion experience? This is in the later part of Acts. But Paul says that Jesus asked him, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? The implication being that it's foolish to continue doing so, right? But, but back to the idea at hand, as I mentioned earlier, goads were used by ancient shepherds to keep animals on a straight path. If they step to the left, you get poked with a goad, and there's pain. You step to the right, you get poked with a goad, and there's pain. The only way for the animal to not have pain is to walk the, di the direction that the shepherd is dictated to go where the shepherd wants you to go. Some of the words in Ecclesiastes come to us like sharp nails on the end of a stick. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is saying that if we, re we really do want to remember our Creator in the days of our youth, then our hearts and minds might sometime 
need to hurt just a little. So he gives us some words that make us sit up and take notice. Words that stop us in our tracks and make us question whether we're really hearing what we think we are hearing. Here's one example from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death, better than the day of birth. It's pretty harsh, right? It's a pretty harsh thing to say. Can that really be right? Because it hurts to hear and it doesn't feel good. But maybe, just maybe, part of what the preacher is doing here is going about the task of bringing our death up close and personal because it's in our nature to keep it at arm's length because it hurts to think about. It is not something we want to address. But Ecclesiastes forces us to come face to face with things and ideas like death. And specific to death, right? What Ecclesiastes says over and over, that death will claim all of us without discretion at some point. And, and for those of us who are alive, death has forced us at times to live life with real tears and real grief as we've experienced the reality of death around us. But part of what is happening in these preachers' difficult words that poke us like goads is that harsh things like death and pain, these things can actually be positive influences for us. Death might be the very thing, looking death in the face, dealing with the difficulties of life, might be the very thing that stops us from expecting too much from created things like pleasure and money and work and power. Death might be the very thing that makes us stop and savor for a moment something that would otherwise pass us by. Finding joy in a meal. Finding joy in time with loved ones. Finding joy in our work and the stuff of life. All is going to be vanity when we expect things to do for us what they cannot. We'll find vanity there. But if we recognize that all that is there is because God put it there, because God is our provider, if God put us where we are today, intentionally put us where we are today, if God created us for the here and now, even though Ecclesiastes says that eternity is in our hearts then what we have today, how we live today, how we come to understand both pleasure and pain, well, that can help us live in the here and the now in a way that experiences joy and honors God and prepares us for the day of judgment. If we can take the wisdom of the preacher in Ecclesiastes and learn to hold these things in tension, well, maybe that's the exact thing that helps us to live in a way that fears God, honors God, living in a way that experiences joy, and actually looking forward to the day of God's judgment and justice. Philip Ryken has this to say about the harshness of some of the things we see in this book. The preacher's words push us not to expect lasting satisfaction in money 
or pleasure, but only in the goodness of God. Ecclesiastes forces us. You can't read it without coming to face to face with a fallen world where death and injustice and pain and sin hold vast influence in this world. But in facing the reality of our fallen world, we're reminded that there is something better. The gritty wisdom of Ecclesiastes reminds us that we can't understand everything beginning to end. Seasons will come and go. But we can be faithful to God's purposes. We can be faithful to the understanding and the belief that there is something better that God has for us, even when we don't understand it. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The third word is the word judgment. Vanity, pain, judgment. Verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In the book of Ecclesiastes, eternity shows up in the present by providing the hope of judgment. Depending on your perspective, judgment can be a promise or a predicament, a hope or a fear. Overall, throughout the Bible, there seems to be this biblical theme of God's judgment and God's justice as a reason for jubilation. Because with God's judgment, with God's justice, there's the hope of a world restored, world redeemed where things are as they should be. Ecclesiastes shows us sometimes, very pointedly, that some things simply have no answer in this life. One of the hardest things to see in the book of Ecclesiastes and indeed in our world under the sun, that in this fallen world, injustice will exist for which there is no answer. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 3, part of it reads like this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who were still alive, but better than both, is he who has not yet been. It's difficult as modern 
believers to stare long and hard at the brokenness of the world. But that's exactly what the preacher in Ecclesiastes has been doing all along. Staring at the brokenness of this fallen world under the sun. And by constantly talking about these things that are difficult, constantly talking about the broken things of this world, constantly talking about the vanity of putting our hope in things that actually can't serve to give us hope, we should never forget that all the way through the book, the preacher is teaching us actually to prepare for judgment and to long for it with every fiber of our beings. Six of the 12 chapters of this book reference the idea of God's judgment in some way or another. Six of 12 chapters reference it. We cannot put an end to evil or explain why natural disasters arrive unannounced or rationalize the violence and cruelty of our world. But when it comes to those things, all is not vanity because God's judgment is coming. And in God's justice, the world will be set to rights The world will be redeemed and recreated. And there is hope in the here and now because of God's judgment and justice. Psalm 96, 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Vanity, pain, judgment. There's something in all of those words and in all of those ideas for us to take away from the book of Ecclesiastes. But if we were to boil all that down and say, what is the call for us this morning? It's a very simple call, but probably really difficult. The call is, as the author of Ecclesiastes sums it up, to fear God and to keep his commandments. When Ben started through this series several weeks ago, he reminded us of a quote from Charles Stanley where he said, Obey God, leave the consequences to him. That's the call for us this morning, to fear God and keep his commandments, to obey God and leave the consequences to him. It's to trust that we don't actually need all the answers because we have a good God. It's to trust that we don't need all the answers because we have a conquering Savior to trust that we don't need all the answers because God is going to set things to rights. And there's a peace and a joy that comes from living in that way. There's a peace and joy that comes from this way of life, right? So the call for us this morning is to take the wisdom of the preacher, to receive it, to honor and obey God with our lives, and learn to live in the joy of that peace. The whole point of Ecclesiastes is to pass the wisdom of the preacher down to the next generation, right? So brothers and sisters, for us this morning, our job is to hear this wisdom, to receive it, and take to heart where Ecclesiastes ends, fearing God, keeping his commandments, obeying God, leaving the consequences to him, 
honoring God, waiting for God's day of justice and judgment. That's where Ecclesiastes leaves us. There's something there for all of us to hear this morning, and it is my hope that we would hear the wisdom of the preacher as we finish our time in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday morning at Redemption. Our uh, time of, res- of response is um, intended to, to do e- exactly what, what it's called. It's a time for us to respond to God and to what he's been speaking to us and saying to us this morning. There are multiple ways we can do that, right? One way is by responding in worship. Uh, we can sing together with the band when they come back up. We can respond in worship by giving. Uh, we can respond in worship in other ways as well. Uh, we can respond in worship by sitting where we are and reflecting on what we've heard and praying about what God might be saying to us and doing in our hearts and minds. You're welcome to grab somebody and pray with them as well um, as we deal with the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And during this time as well, we have an opportunity to, um, to respond by taking communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption as a way of uh, remembering the truth of what Christ has done for us and proclaiming to one another that it's good and true and that we believe it. So if you're here, whether you're a member of Redemption or not, I'd invite you to come down this middle aisle, take the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, take the prepackaged cups, remember the body of Christ that was given for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, and in uh, remembering, um, as we remember those things, we're proclaiming to one another, like I said, that it's good and that it's true. And so if you can remember and you can remember, proclaim the body and blood of Christ, then I would invite you to come and take communion. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move on in that time of response. God, thank you for this reminder from your word this morning. God, thank you that we can trust in a good God. We can trust in the goodness of God who has acted on our behalf, continues to do so. I thank you that in the taking of communion, even now, we can remember Jesus' work on our behalf, Jesus making a way to be rightly related to you, and we can proclaim that truth to one another and celebrate it, find joy in it. God, over the next few minutes as we close our time together, Pray that you would continue to speak the words of the preacher and the wisdom of Ecclesiastes to our hearts and help it to be real to us that we might walk away honoring and obeying you, finding joy in the stuff of life, looking forward to your return. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.